We thank you for today. Again, we thank you for the, for the bright sunshine outside. We thank you for all the many ways you have taught us and led us, guided us, convicted us, provided for us, protected us uh, over this past week. Uh, all the things that you put in our life's path this past week uh, to reveal more of who you are to us. And all these ways uh, to lead us right back here to your house once again for us to pour out our praise and worship to you and to look at your word and see what you have for us. I pray that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you may already know the story of a man named uh, a man affectionately known as Brother Andrew, and many of you may not. In 1928, a boy named Andrew van der Bilge was born in the Netherlands to a deaf father and a mother who was handicapped. And when he was only 11 years old, his older brother, also handicapped, died. While still a youth, when Nazi Germany invaded his village, he would amuse himself by pulling pranks on the occupying soldiers. And when he was 18, he joined the Dutch army. While in the army, Andrew lived a wild life, attacking armies with no regard to his own life and committing several war atrocities at the same time. Racked with guilt, he found that no amount of drinking, fighting, or writing could remove these feelings. When Andrew was shot in the ankle at the age of 20, rendering him no longer able to walk, he spent time in a Catholic-run hospital where he started reading the Bible while bedridden. When Andrew was finally sent home, he battled lagging feelings of, em of emptiness until he finally gave his life to Jesus. Soon after, he felt a, a call from God to become a missionary. However, Andrew kept feeling like he was being held back from that. He wanted to become a missionary, but always responded with, yes, but I'm lame, or yes, but I have no education to do so. One Sunday afternoon, as Andrew wrestled with God in prayer over these limitations to becoming a missionary, as soon as Andrew fully surrendered to God's call with a yes, with no strings attached, God healed his leg in a miraculous instant. From that point forward, Andrew witnessed God providing in miraculous ways for him to attend Bible college in Glasgow, uh, Scotland, deepening his faith in what God would do the rest of his life. Following Andrew's graduation in 1955, he went to communist Warsaw, Poland, to attend a communist youth gathering where he brought several gospel tracts to hand out. Providentially, the Communist Party then invited Andrew to what was then Czechoslovakia, but he broke away from the official trip and learned how the people were really living in horrible conditions, stuffed into ghettos with very little drinking water and food. Moreover, there was an open hostility uh, to, to, uh, by the government to Christianity, resulting in very few Bibles present. Brother Andrew knew what God was ultimately calling him to do at that point. Risk his life breaking the law and smuggling Bibles to these communist countries while encouraging the churches there cut off from the rest of the world and believing they were alone. 
Brother Andrew is famously quoted as saying, quote, Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now, I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things you do not want them to see. And God answered that prayer countless times. Time and time again, Brother Andrew would smuggle Bibles in the back seat of his Volkswagen Beetle right under the authorities' noses while God miraculously blinded the border soldiers and other members of the communist military uh, members uh, of their presence. Brother Andrew was able to bring the good news of the hope of Jesus to people all throughout the communist-ruled area of Europe. People who had never heard and people who could now read God's word who didn't have it before. What's wild to know, too, is that following the fall of the communist regime, KGB documents were released, which revealed that they knew of Brother Andrew and what he was doing, but they couldn't do anything about it. More evidence of God's miraculous protection over this man. Once the doors were open to evangelism to, uh, to communist countries in the 1960s, Brother Andrew knew his work was still not done. He then turned his attention to the Middle East and Muslim countries of the 1040 window and more recently acted as an ambassador for Christ to the leaders of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah. Brother Andrew passed away just last year in 2022 at the age of 94, having never been caught by any of the governments hostile to Christianity and establishing a missions organization based in the UK called Open Doors, you might have heard of it, which still exists to serve Christians in the most persecuted locations in the world. In Brother Andrew's case, God made the seeing eyes blind in order to display the power of what he was doing in lives. And in the account we continue today, God made the blind eyes see in order to display the power of what he was doing in lives. The details and events of Brother Andrew's life, God used to and continues to use to bring the power of God's word and the hope of the gospel of Jesus to people living in extreme spiritual darkness and spiritual hopelessness, even standing up to the authorities to do so. And in our passage this morning, while the man who Jesus had healed from blindness hadn't fully put his faith in Jesus for his salvation yet at this point, he still knew the truth of what Jesus had done for him, enough to stand up to the authorities of his day and openly declare it. We ended last week's message with the man Jesus had healed, having been brought before the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees, openly declaring that at the very least Jesus was a prophet. He knew exactly what the response of anger would be from the Pharisees in him declaring that, but he did it anyway. 
Not liking his belief in who Jesus, at the very least, was, the religious leaders haul in this man's parents to get their take on what has happened. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 9. We're going to be picking up in verses 18 through 19. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 9, verses 18 through 19, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 9, verses 18 through 19, we read this. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The easiest and fastest way to discredit everything this man was saying and just be rid of him was to call his parents in. If his parents could confidently affirm that this man was not their son and therefore not the same man who had sat on the steps of the temple for decades asking for money, then the Pharisees could just, see, I told you, smugly just write everything and everyone, especially Jesus, off and go on their merry way. This was a desperation move, however, as every attempt to throw the case out the window keeps getting foiled. And once again, this move doesn't work either. Verse 20, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Instead of, an, instead of an opportunity to just be done with all of this, the man's parents confirm that he is indeed their son, the one who had been blind. More than that, the parents confirm that this man had been born blind too. And essentially, that there was absolutely no natural way their son could be able to see for the very first time in his life. The man's parents stopped short of vocalizing the same conclusion that their son had declared, though. And they just kind of keep it to vagueness and generalities and passing the buck onto their son. Verse 21 again. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. According to one biblical scholar, the parents are right, technically. According to Jewish tradition, a boy became responsible for his own keeping of the law when he ritually became a man at the age of 13. It's presumed that it's been a lot more years since this man was 13, so the parents were absolved from having to answer any more questions. In reality, the man's parents didn't want to say anything more other than confirming that the man was indeed their son because they didn't have the guts to do it. Verses 22 through 23. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They knew the deck was already stacked against anything positive they could say about the miracle that had clearly just happened to their son and clearly had everything to do with Jesus because the Pharisees had already come out and said it. More or less, this was law. 
that if anyone even came anywhere close to declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, they were going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. That, that was the most powerful threat any body of authority could give in that religious society and world. To someone whose entire identity was based on Jewish ethnicity, Jewish law, Jewish faith, and Jewish culture, to be excommunicated from the center of Jewish faith in society meant the end of everything you held dear, including your friends and family. Everyone you ever knew and loved now had every lawful reason to shun you and cut you out of their lives. For most, and as we'll see here, Eh, nothing was worth losing all of that. The ironic part in all this interrogation up to this point is that, as noted by one biblical scholar, pharisaical training taught that every investigation into every matter must be done without bias or prejudice. So the parents' refusal to answer any further out of fear of retribution just confirms that the Pharisees were obviously and blatantly breaking their own rules here. That irony and obvious hypocrisy gets carried over to what the Pharisees say next to the healed man. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The phrase, give glory to God, was a Jewish legal phrase during a legal proceeding. And it meant to demand a witness only speak the truth and whatever the case was. It's similar to today when a bailiff will have a witness raise his or her right hand and say, do you swear to tell the truth and only the truth? But what the Pharisees say next is clearly not just wanting to get the truthful testimony of this witness. They basically put these words in the healed man's mouth and pressure him into affirming what they want him to affirm. That Jesus is a sinner and therefore is not from God and a liar. Do you see how low these guys, these so-called religious and legal experts are willing to go, they're basically coaxing and flat-out pressuring the witness to give the testimony they want to hear. They're basically saying, come on, just say it, say it, say it, just say it, come on, they say it, just say it, you know you want to say it, say it. But again, this man will not cave to pressure, no matter how condemning it might be to him personally. He knows the exact same information as his parents know, but he knows the truth of what happened to him, and he will not back down. In fact, it's so ludicrous as to what is happening still that, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, the healed man starts getting impatient with the Pharisees, as we can see here in his response. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Now before that, 
in verses 25 and 26. He said, he then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they pressure him again. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And then he gets impatient with them and says, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? I love the man's last thing he says here. Why are you so interested in what this guy is doing? Do you want to become his disciples too? This sarcastic comment, as noted by one biblical scholar, and implying that the Pharisees have had any kind of change in heart is too much for the Pharisees, though. Their fury starts to boil over at the insolence of this man towards their intelligence, education, and religious authority. The Pharisees now resort to ridiculing this man who God has set apart for Jesus to display his works of might, power, and healing. Verses 28 through 29. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. You can almost reread what the Pharisees first say and retort with a childish tone. Like, you're his disciple. Like if you were a kid growing up in the 90s and someone called you a name and you replied with a knee-jerk response, I know you are, but what am I? The Pharisees then back up their position with their credentials. They basically say, we follow the writings and teachings of Moses like every good Jewish leader does. We have no clue where this Jesus comes from or what he's about. The sad reality is that they should have if they spent more time on trying to find out who he was instead of being salty all the time and just trying to accuse him of stuff. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, once again, the irony with this statement, meant to give credit to themselves, is that if they were indeed true followers of what Moses wrote, they would have seen that Moses pointed to the Messiah and how their following of Moses should have led them to following Jesus as the foretold Messiah. Again, the man responds with irritated sarcasm. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. You can't deny that that actually happened. In other words, it doesn't matter what the Pharisees thought of it, how much they belittled it, or refused to believe that it even happened. That didn't matter what the truth was. This man had been born blind. But now, because of Jesus, he could see. It's as simple as that. I was blind, but now I see. Ironically, the man who had been blind his, own, his whole life could both physically and spiritually see, while the Pharisees could not see the truth right in front of them, and they outright refused to see it. The Pharisees' willful continued spiritual blindness prevented them from seeing the simple truth right in front of them. A lot of people are the same way today. 
They've heard the truth of Jesus, but willfully and continually refuse to see the truth of it for themselves. Like the Pharisees, they put their trust in another religion they were raised in, or the education they were taught, or their own level of intelligence, or how much money and influence they have, or based on their own pride. All of these sources perpetuate their state of spiritual blindness and refusing to see the truth of Jesus in the lives of those all around them. The problem is not that the truth is impossible or that the truth is unbelievable. The problem is that they just refuse to see it for what it is. If you're someone who has lived your whole life trusting in what you know and see and can believe from this world, and refusing to see or put your faith in the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, paying for your sin on your behalf, and that repenting of that sin and taking Jesus as the Savior from it and the King over the rest of your life, that doesn't change what the truth is. If you surrender to the Holy Spirit's churning in your heart and God opening your eyes to see what the truth really is, then God will spend the whole rest of your life changing the entire way you see everything to be the way he wants you to see it. You too, even though you've been blind since birth, can finally be given Jesus' given sight. The truth of Jesus will always remain as the truth, no matter how unbelievable you think it is. What needs to change is your spiritual eyes being open to see it. So those of us who have answered God's call to put our full trust and faith in what Jesus has done for us and have had our spiritual eyes open to see God's truth, we must continue to pray for those in our lives who are still blind to it, that God would open their eyes through the miracle of life change that once again only Jesus can give. The healed man continues to give the reason for what faith he's already put in Jesus being, at the very least, a prophet sent by God to heal him. Verses 31 through 33. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What this man says in verse 31 is backed up by other scriptures. Among other passages, he's probably thinking of Isaiah 59 too. But your wrongdoings have caused a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And from the New Testament, we see that believers in Jesus enjoy a greater confidence that God acts on the prayers of those who strive to follow his word and standards. We read, a prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a human being just like any one of us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months, then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. 
This is not to say that God doesn't ever listen to nor act in connection with the prayers of unbelievers or those who don't care about his word or standards. He's sovereign and he can do what his will deems best. And we see evidence of that in his word. But at the same time, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus have the confidence of praying to God as a child would ask of things from their father and knowing the promise that God takes care of his children of faith. Unbelievers simply cannot have that same confidence nor those promises. It's not like Jesus pulled off some magic trick he bought at the dollar store. To have this man who everyone called Jesus of Nazareth be able to perform such an indescribably powerful miracle is evidence in and of itself that he couldn't be the level of sinful con man the Pharisees were making him out to be. To this man, Jesus had to enjoy a close connection with God's power as a prophet who strove to please him. That's what the man furthers in verse 33. This man knew that food had miraculous, miraculously been provided, a kid had been raised from the dead, fire had been called down from heaven, and these were all performed by men who were clear and recognized prophets in Israel's past. A feat like opening the eyes of a man who had been born his entire life, who had been blind, I'm sorry, blind his entire life from birth, that had never been done before and was on par with any one of these other acts that everyone knew had been done by prophets through the power of God. Why couldn't any of the Pharisees see this obvious connection? This man wonders. To this man, it was as clear as day. Jesus was at the very least a prophet sent by God and backed up his righteousness as such, by the jaw-dropping miracles he was obviously able to do. It didn't matter what the experts and authorities thought about, any of it. This man knew what the truth was, and he stuck to it. Like all other persecution for knowing what the truth of Jesus and God's word clearly says, this man ends up dealing with the ramifications for doing so. Verse 34. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. And what that means is they then excommunicated him from the Jewish temple. The Pharisees can't help but throw one more insult at this man. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the Pharisees' rage and irrationality led them to go right back to the prevalent belief of the day, which Jesus had already refuted as a man-made teaching. And that was this, that one's physical disability had to only be because of some grievous sin they committed. Jesus already refuted that when he healed this man. They threw the entire book of Job out the window and doubled down on that unbiblical conclusion here. And again, we see the nonsense of it. This man was born blind. How could a baby sin so grievously that God would curse him with blindness for it? Beyond that, was this man blind anymore at this point? No! 
If his disability was caused by his own grievous sin, and as the man had just pointed out, no blind man's eyes had ever been opened before in the history of humanity, then there was absolutely no reason for God to open them now. And yet, he had, through Jesus, debunking the Pharisees' strongly held belief and unmasking how nonsensical it really was. Pharisees had been outthought and outreasoned and had no other course of action than to throw a temper tantrum and toss the guy out of synagogue membership. In their man, in, in their minds, this man was an illiterate beggar who was acting like he was smarter than they were. Since they couldn't refute him with scripture or even reason or logic, they decided the only repercussion was to cancel him. Seems like not much has changed 2,000 years later, has it? Especially now, as it looks like the time for Jesus to return is coming closer and closer. God is calling on his children to be fearless. He's calling on us to courageously share the truth of Jesus' salvation through faith in him and him alone, no matter how it's received or what repercussions, persecution, or loss we may have to endure because of it. He's calling on us to boldly stand for the clear truth of his word, no matter how much we're insulted, attacked, shadow banned or canceled because of it. Specifically today, what is God calling you to do specifically? What is God calling each and every one of you to do? Jesus gives these very direct and powerful commands to his disciples, including us today. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, if anybody truly wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus does not pull any punches there, does he? Seems very clear to me without any kind of wiggle room. How about you? How does that sound to you? It's extreme, but it's the truth of the life Jesus is commanding us to live. Do you think the excuse, but it was too hard, is going to stand up when we stand before Jesus? Wouldn't you rather risk and face some persecution in this life that's only a vapor at any way and will end someday and know we're pleasing God and focused on what will last for eternity? 
Similar to the man in today's passage, along with Brother Andrew, again, what is God calling you to do to live fearlessly for him today? What is he calling you to today? What is he calling you to that's extreme for the cause of Christ's hope, even at school or work, that will perhaps lose you friends and family, that looks foolish and ridiculous to this world, that goes against the culture and might even make you have to take a stand against the government because of it. What is God calling you to today? Like Brother Andrew, you might be feeling and have been for quite some time now that God is calling you to follow him or do something for him that makes no earthly sense. Like the man who Jesus healed, you might be feeling and have for quite some time now that you need to openly declare who Jesus is, what his salvation is, and stand up for the truth of God's word in a certain situation. I don't know what God has been calling you to do, but you do, and God does. In either or both cases, finally, today, right this second, yield to what God has been calling you to do for him and radically following him, telling others about Jesus, standing up for his truth, and building his kingdom. end our message time with this verse, these verses again. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of courage we see in your word here. This man knew exactly what he was risking, what he was facing, if he simply stood up for the truth of what you, he knew you had done for him. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the same boldness and courage through the Holy Spirit, especially as we see that day approaching where you will come back for us. We can clearly see all around us that we are in the last days and it's time to stop messing around and it's time to fully yield to what you've been calling us to do, no matter how radical or extreme it may seem or how, much, how little sense it makes to this world. You are it. You are our foundation. You are our only strength and power and hope and foundation. Lord, I pray that Whatever you have placed on our heart, whatever you've been working in our heart lately that we've perhaps been fighting against, wrestling with, wondering if it's worth it, that we will finally yield to that today and go forth out of this place today and do the work you have called us to do. You are calling your children to live fearlessly right now. This is a dark and dangerous time in this world. And now more than ever, you need your children to stand up strong for your truth. I pray that you would give us the power to do so. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we transition to